Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 5 of The J Word, a podcast by Journals of Practice. In each episode, we connect practice and theory through critical discussions of technology, news practices, and cultural and social issues. Our aim is to highlight the work that appears in the journal, making the articles discussed here free access for a short time. I'm your host, Ted Gucci, an associate editor at Journals of Practice, associate professor at Lancaster University in the UK, and a visiting professor at Vitotis Magnus University in Lithuania. So glad you could join us. Let's get started. In today's episode, we take a look at influences of gender and identity in news work, with a focus on investigative journalism in Latin America. Vanessa de Masado Higgins Joyce at Texas State University in the U.S. discusses the opportunities and challenges for women entering that news genre. In Colombia, Julian de Cortez Sanchez at Universidad del Rosario, who is also affiliated with Fudan University in China, the Universidad de los Andes in Colombia, and Waxen University in India, talks through a content analysis of business journalism that, in part, discusses the roles and representations of women in financial news and recorded separately, Tyra L. Jackson at Texas A&M in the U.S. shares her autoethnography about working as a black female reporter in a white newsroom. Thanks everyone for being a part of this. I think it would be really interesting to kind of start with you, Vanessa, to give us an overview of investigative journalism in Latin America writ large, of course, but to focus in on the, the really interesting parts of how these new opportunities for women journalists there also are presenting some challenges that the industry and scholars and citizens really should be taking a, a look at as women enter further into investigative work. Can, can you kind of walk us through what your project is? Yes, yeah, so um, our article looks at um, investigative journalism in Latin America. And um, so overall, the, the premise of the study is that um, with the redemocratization of Latin America, investigative journalism was able to find itself kind of out of the shadows and into the mainstream of journalism. And where in the past it suffered a lot of direct censorship, uh, we were interested in looking at uh, what constitutes some barriers now in um, this type of journalism that is so important and relevant in um, with the new democracies in Latin America. And how did you go about doing this? We'll get to the findings and kind of some, some understandings of what those barriers are and hopefully what the things are people are doing to overcome those barriers. But how did you take a look at this uh, situation? It's, it's complex, it's deep, it's historical. What did you guys do? Yeah, so we had um, a, uh, well, we did a survey and actually two sets of surveys, so two cross-sectional surveys, um, one in 2013 and one in 2017. And in each case, we had journalists from uh, 20 Latin American countries that uh, participated in the study. And where we asked about um, uh, an open-ended question uh, about barriers of um, what they faced uh, in terms of barriers for their work in uh, investigative journalism. And what we found that the, 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 the biggest barriers that they faced were attacks and threats. Um, and so we focus on that. We focus on the attacks and threats as a main barrier to uh, investigative journalism. What is it about, uh, certainly people don't want investigative journalism to be uncovering certain truths uh, and, re and realities out there. What were the differences that, that led to these sort of threats and attacks? You know, uh, journalism in Latin America, just as journalism in other regions of the world, right, has been changing and evolving. And um, we see a huge rise in online journalism and, um, and news and information disseminated through social media and access through so so social media as well. And um, with these evolutions that we see in journalism in the region, we also see um, a change in how and who um, um, kind of, uh, um, let's see, uh, 
how these threats are being presented, right? So I, I think that that's what you're getting at here. Um, we're seeing more threats done through social media, and while in the past uh, it was not uncommon for journalists to receive a phone call if they were investigative, investigating perhaps a politician who uh, had done some uh, wrongdoing or to receive you know, a more direct threat of, uh, uh, to their lives or even being uh, a lot of journalists who have been murdered in the region. Um, and that certainly silences a lot of the investigations that are, are done in the region. Uh, but what we see um, more recently is really a dissemination of, of threats that um, um, occur by, uh, Sylvia Weisbord calls it, um, a, 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 a mob, kind of uh, citizens uh, uh, participating in kind of in support to against these investigation and really threatening uh, a lot of uh, journalists and especially female journalists um, online. Do you have a sense of what some of those investigations were about? Are there certain types of trends? Are there certain is, is it business, politics, government? W what are the things that are that are leading to these investigations that that journalists are going into? So it varies, right? Like so, this this survey, our survey, was um, uh, with a wide range of journalists covering um, doing investigations in different areas, right? So, but a lot of journalists do um, investigations on uh, government wrongdoings and corruption scandals that are ramp rampant in uh, Latin America. And, uh, and those definitely tend to be some of the, the topics that get a lot of kind of this mob uh, effect uh, online. But, um, but the journalists that we survey, they um, they don't only investigate uh, politics, right? So there's a lot of investigations that cover bigger corporations, some um, some I issues of environment and drug dealing, and that's that is also, of course, uh, an area where it's not government, but perhaps. Um, criminals that um, can be threatening uh, these politicians, uh, sorry, these journalists to um, not cover, um, right, or, or to stop calling attention to uh, their criminal acts, right? So that's also um, definitely a part of the, the environment that these journalists in Latin America face. And there was a significant uh, amount of attention to issues of sex and gender of the journalists who were doing some of these investigations. Can you can you talk a little bit about what what that influence for the article was? Yes. So, um, in uh, because we had um, you know we we were able to see a little bit of this evolution of of uh, um, the barriers or. or the journalists who see threats and attacks as barriers to their work as investigative journalists, in that time frame, um, we actually see already more female journalists being included in the workplace to begin with, right? So um, Latin America was a little behind other regions in the world and in including more female journalists in the work pit, uh, workplace. And um, it, it, it was systemic and, and uh, it really um, was lower to include uh, uh, female journalists, right? But um, while it's still not 50-50, um, there, there's been a really, uh, um, push to include more um, diversity in newsrooms in general and, 
and spe specifically female journalists, right, which is uh, interesting here in, in our study. So there are more journa female journalists um, in the profession, more female journalists who are finding their work uh, um, in digital news organizations and uh, with this shift to more online news. And um, in, in so uh, in one hand, you have more inclusion, right, which is certainly a positive thing, more female journalists who are uh, doing investigative reporting, which was not traditionally a, um, uh, an area where female journalists uh, worked at. And so you have start seeing more female journalists working in that area. Um, and while at the same time you see, uh, so from um, the in individual level, you see the, the gender there, but at the organizational level, you see them working more at newer organizations, perhaps, or digital organizations and their work being in that environment. Um, and so that, the, the, the visibility of their work, um, I, I believe, has made them more vulnerable to these attacks uh, where perhaps uh, where once they were um, in the newsroom in a uh, newspaper where their face were not was not as uh, present or perhaps they didn't have as much of a feedback from their audiences and were perhaps protected a little bit by the organizational structure the openness of the internet and the inclusion of audiences uh, in social media and the political environment uh, has definitely um, uh, led them to more vulnerabilities. Um, some examples, uh, you know, we don't get into examples because we don't ask them specifically, but um, there are recent examples in Brazil, for example, uh, where female journalists have faced, you know, sexual harassment uh, online and uh, really threats to uh, their families and threats to themselves, uh, especially of sexual nature. Um, because of uh, um, just the, the, the stories that they were producing. So um, there's a vulner vulnerability in, uh, in the exposure, but also in the political environment um, that these journalists are working currently. Well, thanks for that. We'll come back and kind of unpack a little bit more. I do want to um, go from kind of one real heavily specialized type of work that's investigative journalism to another type of highly specialized work where issues of gender, but also uh, other influences come across uh, in, in coverage of business news. Julian, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what this paper, what this article is that you did with your co-author. Can you kind of set the scene for what we're looking at where we've moved now into Colombia and we're looking at columnist coverage of economies? Yes, of course. Uh, thank you, Ted. So with Daniel, my co-author, we talk about uh, the the, the treatment of uh, business journalism in developing countries. But we realize that there is not such uh, an attractive amount of studies in that line. So regardless of that, we can see that business people and entrepreneurs are voracious uh, consumers of business and news content. For instance, we can see that uh, Wall Street Journal uh, reaches an audience of over 40 million digital readers per month. And uh, of course, there, there are a lot of studies in that line, but what about uh, uh, middle and low income countries? How we can really understand both the content and other characteristics of, a, of a business journalism in, in, our, in their context, uh, in the context of, of uh, Colombia, in this case, of, uh, in, in particular. So in this study, we delve into uh, multiple characteristics of uh, business media and their development in terms of reliability 
and content of business digital uh, columns in, in Colombia. So in broad terms, we analyze over 500 columns of the two most influential outlets uh, in the country, uh, particularly in this line, we're talking about Dinero and Portfolio. So I would I will like to just um, send a link to the conversation that uh, Vanessa and you guys were having uh, just a few seconds ago in terms of the uh, female columnist uh, participation in these uh, outlets in Colombia. So we found that uh, female columnists were under underrepresented in the in the sample. So, for instance, in Dinero, we we found that only two out of ten columnists were female, uh, whereas in Portfolio, only one out of ten, which is comparable with the seven percent of uh, women CEOs in the Fortune 500 list. Also, another thing that we found that was really interesting is that when we look at the specific topics of the of the sample of, of, of columns, uh, uh, there is no um, uh, topics related to gender and diversity issues, including uh, by the same uh, female columnists. So not even uh, women are talking about in, in their spaces, in those outlets, uh, about uh, the lack of participation of women, not only in journalism, but in business in general. I think that that's a really, uh, one of the really important sort of outcomes from, from this article. But if we step back for one second, we're looking at columns. Can you talk to us a little bit about why columns are these particularly uh, important within business reporting? Why are we looking at this and not kind of like straight or breaking news articles? What is it about the column that, that it made them so attractive for, for research? So one of the main characteristics of this, uh, of columns, of this basis of, of information, of um, uh, personal impressions of a, a businessman or businesswoman or uh, experts on, on several fields is that uh, uh, some uh, CEOs and managers in companies uh, base their decisions in the information that they consume, not only in the in business media in particular, but also in the in-depth analysis that uh, columnists are providing in in these um, in these pieces. So that's why uh, we think that uh, these particular uh, uh, pieces are part of the decision making in in the business world beyond just the the break news of the day. Also, uh, the the main and the original idea of analyzing uh, business columns was to trying to find uh, evidence of the sort of degree of assortment of a degree of truth, if you will, of uh, this column of these columns. Because in my uh, in, in in multiple views about uh, the columns, of course they they are uh, reflected. Uh, the opinion they are reflecting the opinion of, of an expert, but uh, is this opinion particularly backed by evidence? So that was the main, the, the original idea to sort of uh, measure the degree of truth or the measure the degree of uh, supporting evidence in the opinion of this uh, columnist. But of course, the the project uh, took another path. So that's that's why um, we took uh, columns as a particular object of uh, of our interest. And you mentioned readability. How did you measure readability? Okay, so uh, there is a well-established um, set of methods to measure readability in, in text. Uh, we're talking about the studies that uh, uh, were conducted um, almost uh, 70 years uh, years ago by the U.S. Army to, um, uh, to increase the, 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 the readability of technical text uh, that they were using in their, in their reporting and their manuals. So in terms of readability, uh, we can con construct 
um, indicators based on the, the number of complex uh, words, for instance, words that uh, may have uh, over three uh, syllables and uh, sentences that will have uh, multiple complex words and so on. And there are a lot of methodologies. So uh, in that part, we find this uh, characteristic uh, very interesting because we can compare with um, international business outlets uh, in terms of what's uh, the level of reliability in 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 a in a com in a, in a comparable framework with with other um, uh, outlets around the world. But what what, what we could find is that uh, the reliability in, in Colombian context is way more complex when we compare uh, the results with, to international studies. And one of the things that we, we consider that um, may cause these uh, differences in terms of reliability with international um, uh, media is that the content and reliability of mass media may be caused by several factors, uh, such as reporters, having become better educated and the adaptation of news media to change and the introduction of new competitors and also relying on the concept of technical experts. In that line, we can see that also uh, some of the topics that we uh, identified for these two outlets were uh, very complex to try to analyze in very simple words. For instance, we are dealing in the case of a portfolio, one of the outlets that we analyze uh, we're talking about politics and, and economic growth. We're talking about uh, socioeconomic agendas, economic indicators, laws and taxes and economic information, international economic scenarios and relevant topics on financial, on financial information. So we think that there, um, the reliability factors uh, in terms of opinion and, uh, and those experts uh, trying to board these, these very complex topics we have to address in a way that are very complex uh, in terms of um, in, in, a com in a comparable way with uh, news from um, international media. So in that line, we can really measure how, how well these experts are dealing with explaining to the wider audience these very complex topics. And we'll come back to Vanessa in a second, too, to, to ask a little bit about what's being done um, related to some of the, um, uh, the challenges that have been uh, addressed in that specialty of investigative uh, journalism. But in terms of business news in, in Colombia, uh, that, which you may not address in, in the article, because article, not, not every article can do everything. So I'm asking you to step outside for two seconds of it. What is being done to, uh, you, you kind of write about, wanting to you know that that there's a consideration possibly that we should be incentivizing the participation and include inclusion of uh, female colonists and, and developing unexplored context topics so you're talking about minority issues such as women in business media or um, interactions with big data and, and ai that these are strategic aspects for maybe sustainability as well as um, the the merits of inclusivity are, are you seeing any any changes? I think we heard from from Vanessa that uh, maybe more women uh, in uh, investigative journalism in parts of Latin America now than than possibly before. Uh, there there's you know um, that that's a good thing. Is that happening with women in business news uh, in Colombia? Do you, do you know or are there efforts that are that are out there to try and make that happen? One of the lines that we discover is that uh, a most of the colonists were in the private sector and when we uh, sort of study by by gender right so um most of the colonists uh, again were, were males uh, affiliated with the private sector while most of a uh, female colonists were affiliated with the non-profit sector for instance universities and ngos right so uh, in, in those terms, we can see that in Colombia, there is uh, an, uh, an important increase in participation of women in, the, um, in higher uh, management uh, level in, in multiple um, uh, uh, companies. So I think that if, if more women are participating in uh, those higher level um, roles, there will be a lot of uh, chance 
for uh, those uh, women to try to uh, become a columnist for uh, this particular media. So try to uh, level the profile of columnists by, di uh, by just um, sort of uh, pivoting from the private sector to the news uh, media, particularly here in the in the columnist sec uh, section. So there is an increasing participation of women in the in, in the in the private sector. Uh, in that way, uh, the, these uh, particular uh, outlets will have to look at this participation that is in, that is increasing and sort of uh, level the the the, um, the stream. Of uh, uh, of um, of uh, uh, of males as columnists, but but uh, in a way try to take advantage of the of the participation of women in uh, increasing levels of higher management here in Colombia. I don't know if I just uh, explain myself better. No, no, no. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And and it, just a quick follow up to that. I, I wonder, is there is there more believability of a columnist who is in part of private business than one who's a part of a nonprofit or a charity or even a university? Are, are columnists who are part of that private sector aspect considered more expert than even maybe the economist or the person at a, at a charity or, or nonprofit? Well, I think that one of the things that uh, we as um, uh, business school professors, uh, we took in, in a very highly importance the, the, the practical knowledge of, uh, that, that you have acquired uh, throughout your uh, professional career. So, for instance, if somebody's talking about um, AI and how AI is transforming organizations, but the only background that this uh, particular person has is in um, conducting um, anthropological research in the Amazon, we can see that there is no connection between what the person is talking about and the background. So in the other aspect, we can see that uh, either Either a, a woman or, or a man uh, from the business sector, for from the finance sector or service sector or a telecommunication sector, is talking about those particular sectors. We can see and we can feel this sort of bias uh, that that is um, is positive for the person that is talking from the sector that uh, this person has uh, uh, his experience. So in that line, I think that uh, that particular background will help two women to um, be part of this set of columnists in, in the business media in Colombia. Yeah, that's a great way to kind of think about how to create some of that change, what opportunities that need to be expanded for uh, women and, and uh, groups to be, become uh, involved in so that when they become um, even more expert, uh, right, um, they, they can speak that sort of language, I guess, in, into certain communities. Vanessa, I want to kind of go back to, to a last question before we move to, to Tyra. You, you, you talk about how there are more women involved in investigative journalism uh, uh, throughout Latin America. And Latin America is so diverse and so uh, expansive that, um, you know, I, I'm not expecting for you to be able to answer this, you know, specifically to, to any one region necessarily or to all regions, I guess. But something's changed uh, for, for, for women to become involved in investigative journalism. I guess my first question would be, do you know what, what that is that might have led to some of that inclusivity? But also, what's being done in terms of safety, right? I mean, it shouldn't just be that journalists themselves are responsible for knowing all these different ways to protect, encrypt, uh, you know, all these different different things. They're employees, uh, even freelance, they're contract, right? Um there should be some sort of responsibility from the, the corporations or the organizations, uh, the, the news organizations. So can you tell us first anything that you know about kind of how and why more women might be involved in investigative journalism in parts of Latin America? And then what's being done um, about the safety, I guess, of all uh, investigative journalists, but especially women if they're targets of a very specific type of harassment? 
Yeah, so, um, well, yes, we definitely, while, while the study looks at Latin America in general, um, like you said, you know, there are certainly differences within Latin America, and we try to encompass some of that by looking to specific regions within Latin America. So definitely it's not the case uh, in general. <coughs> but um, women have been, um, been increasingly part of going to universities um, and being part of the educational uh, part, the education part of uh, of society. So there are more women now in Latin America that have a um, a degree, uh, 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 undergraduate degree, and um, so and that's in general, right? And that's the case in journalism as well. Um, so just to give you my personal example, when I was an undergraduate student in Brazil, which where I studied, I uh, studied journalism in Brazil. And uh, when I attended my uh, university, uh, uh, my college there, um, women were already half of the class, right? If not the majority of the class, but by the time I was graduating uh, four years after that. Um, I was within the minority of those graduating from college. So there was a discouragement of uh, women to, um, while, while there was more interest in women, women in, in becoming uh, journalists, right, and attending a university, which at that time it was, uh, uh, mandatory, uh, you had to have a journalism degree to be uh, a journalist at that time. Uh, so there was a lot of interest, but something along the, uh, along the way of earning that degree discouraged women into uh, becoming journalists in general, right? I'm not talking about investigative um, journalists. So that was in the late 90s and um, when I was doing my undergraduate, in, in those years, right, um, there's been um, an inclusion of, uh, well, the internet had arrived in Latin America and became more prevalent and it took a while longer than in other regions in the world, but it definitely by the mid-2000s to the late-2000s, uh, the internet is widely accessible, though there's differences uh, within Latin America in, um, in, in the accessibility. But with that, um, there were, um, and with some other economic changes that were happening in journalism, with a lot of layoffs and uh, transition of advertising, there was a lot of incentives for journalists to uh, develop um, smaller organizations online. And um, many of those um, in Latin America ended being um, investigative journalism organizations because while on one side you have a lot of layoffs, on the other side you have this opportunity to kind of recreate what uh, people saw as important parts of, of journalism. So there's definitely a lot of business uh, um, journalism ventures uh, online as well. Uh, that's definitely also another area and relevant and important area. Investigative journalism is one of the main areas where you see these independent digital native news organizations, which kind of coincides then with the, the increase of women um, in the newsroom. So you, to answer your question, uh, why there are uh, more women interested in investigative journalism now. I believe because there is uh, an inc uh, a renewed interest in investigative journalism in general in um, Latin America. And um, some journalists, 
saw an opportunity to develop that area in these uh, independent digital native news organization. And at the same time, um, it is a time when women are more widely entering um, the, the journalism profession. So um, I don't see necessarily that it's an area that women were interested in specifically, but more in general that um, um, women are more interested now uh, or more able in uh, um, there are more opportunities for women to enter the profession nowadays than even in the mid-90s when you had really um, mainly legacy media um, that were um, traditional journalism organizations in the region. Well, and those are really interesting uh, ideas about how times change uh, and sometimes how times don't change in terms of how societies and industries such as journalism are inclusive, but also uh, have have lots of challenges that are that are put in the way sometimes intentionally uh, and sometimes simply because of the the changing times and the ebbs and flows of, of how that goes but we shouldn't be okay with those barriers that are put in place and and Tyra here you have uh, joined us to talk about your autoethnography that you've published in journals of practice about uh, being a, a black woman in a white newsroom and I'm wondering if uh, you know this is a very personal, story. And, and so I want to really celebrate and thank you for, for sharing it and, and publishing it. Uh, and so I really kind of want to give you the, the opportunity, the space and, and for me to be quiet. And you set the stage here, if, if you will, about uh, what this project is. Uh, and we can uh, continue this conversation here in this episode about inclusivity uh, through your story. So could you walk us through uh, what it is that you wrote about? Yeah, so again, as you mentioned, this is an autoethnography. Um, I'm pretty much detailing my own experiences with uh, racialized bullying in a uh, Southern newsroom. Um, I've written an article because of, uh, of course, because of the bullying I've experienced and always thought, you know, it's just my story is not gonna matter until I uh, got into uh, school, into grad school and realized, you know, there's a way for me to talk about my story that where it just doesn't impact me, but it impacts people who look like me, black uh, female journalists. And not just that, um, it's a way for uh, editors and those in leadership to understand my experiences and relate them to uh, other reporters who might be in the newsroom. So again, this is just simply uh, detailing my experiences on bullying uh, and how that racially motivated bullying affected me personally and um, how I went about trying to report it to leadership and how everything was handled so wrongly. And um, at the end, I pretty much provide, you know, a bit of a solution as to how we can or how newsrooms can better handle issues of uh, racially motivated bullying. Well, I don't want to ask you to relive any of those experiences. Certainly, you you do so in the uh, in the pages of this of this article and, and connect it through critical race theory and other approaches to how newsrooms uh, operate. Could you give us kind of a sense of what we're talking about here in terms of the uh, the environments that that are created in newsrooms that allow for this type of bullying? There's a lot of research talking about journalistic safety and harm from outside. Uh, a lot of research talking about it on social media. Um, but we know that this happens in newsrooms. Can you give us kind of some ideas about what it is about possibly newsroom environments that, that we can start to, uh, to, to think about or lenses that this article gives us where we can better interrogate other newsrooms? Sure. Um, so newsrooms are very white. I know you might have heard of that um, from the beginning when you're in journalism school. Some of the principles we're taught are Eurocentric. They tell us to focus on what's important to white people. How do we include this perspective? But it never includes how do we, you know, handle or how do we include minorities or a different perspective? So when you're in a newsroom, sometimes in newsrooms, uh, there's that moment of it's just not. A, a reporter just being the only black person or the only minority in a newsroom, there's issues of their perspectives not being heard. Um, it's issues of if someone pitches a different idea that goes against, you know, the standard uh, 
white story or the standard approach to how someone would handle a story, you know, that person is looked down upon or they're ignored or, you know, there are instances where also just being a person of color in a newsroom puts a target on your back to the point where you, 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 you kind of feel watched as if, if you do something wrong, it's always documented versus if you do something right, it's never talked about because the white reporters who write from their perspective, their work is always going to be seen as right. But if I come from a different approach or I write a certain way, you know, I might be chastised for it or called out for it or, you know, looked at differently. So there's that feeling of sometimes having or wanting to conform to that newsroom space because it's so white and it's not as inclusive. Well, I think that's really interesting. You know, we do talk on the podcast and in in research about journalism training and, and education, and it's very much about positive ways to reinforce uh, information or to get across ideas. Uh, we may not say that we're teaching people how to manage. We may be teaching people a bit about how to be managed, but really I don't think that we really represent, at least at universities, environments that are representative of the ways that, that people talk to each other in newsrooms. And I don't want to put a huge general blanket over things, but there's a section here where you write, that when I did something wrong, like skipped an important detail during a court hearing or forgot to ask law officials about details of a court document, I was reminded, quote, you have to cover these things, uh, end quote, the managing editor would say. He would peer over his laptop while reading the story and simultaneously lecturing me. I was not mad he addressed my lack of detail. I was upset about the way he chose to do so. And so I remember those exact same sort of, sort of things. Now, as a straight white man in the Midwest, these things may be said to me for different reasons and in different ways or about different topics and different issues. But I do think that there still seems to be a curmudgeonly sort of uh, way of how we talk to each other at a very basic level. Uh, but then when you throw in these other aspects, right, of the fundamentals, the foundations of whiteness and how explanations are given, who's authority enough, who has enough authority to give an explanation, right, uh, as a source, uh, how language might be used, uh, it does become a lot more of a, a dangerous environment, I think, than we seem to be preparing journalists for. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yes, definitely. I think uh, specifically in newsrooms or any environment for that matter, people should very much be aware. And when I say aware, I do not mean, you know, walking on eggshells. But do acknowledge people's differences when you do speak to them, because from my perspective in that moment that you just mentioned, I am a black woman and a older white man who's my superior is talking to me in a condescending manner. At this point, I've had years of experience as a journalist. I also had a master. I also had a master's degree. So I'm not a new journalist. I'm still new to the beat, but I know what I'm doing. But the manner in which I was told to correct something. Um, you know, very condescending. So again, it's a matter of being mindful of the people we're talking to. I don't mean that, you know, because someone is white, you can just talk to them any kind of way. But if you're talking to a woman or you're talking to a person of color, look at the context at which you're talking to them and how you're talking to them. You know, I was talked to in front of the whole newsroom as if, you know, like my business is just on Front Street and it's for everyone to see me just be, you know, talked down upon in front of everyone and, you know it would have been easier if the editor just simply came to my desk and said hey you know Tyra fix this you know here's where you messed up but it was just so you know so condescending again and these are about repeated patterns I mean this isn't certainly uh, you know the 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 joy of the autoethnography is also maybe it's curse right it's a uh, constant reflection of going back and forth between memories instances interpretations theory, checking in, right? Um, uh, talk a little bit about how you go about doing an autoethnography, first of all, to, from, from your experience, but about something like this. Um, so this was my first autoethnography um, ever. So this was completely new to me. Um, I chose to write an autoethnography because that whole experience of bullying was something that it was pretty pretty much something that lasted years even after I left that newsroom. I always blamed myself for, you know, being angry. And I saw an autoethnography as a way to, I guess, a cathartic method 
of, you know, retracing what I went through and maybe finding some answers and reasons why I, you know, why I went through those issues and things of that nature. So um, the autoethnography as a method for uh, this article really, really uh, helped me realize, you know, you were a victim. I don't like to use that term victim. If you know me personally, <laughs> I, I am not what you would, you know, traditionally deem a victim but i learned you know this is actually bullying um and it took it took me to a point of realization as i was writing this article to you know start putting names to the experiences i faced as a uh, black female reporter i think in journalism studies and in journalism we're very much about finding solutions and i i'm getting a little i'm, I'm 42 this year I'm, I'm getting a little kind of tired of talking about solutions when it doesn't seem People are coming around to kind of agree upon what some of the problems are. Um, so I, I am going to kind of go and ask you that because you do provide some perspectives. I don't think they're solutions, but I think they're perspectives uh, written in really excellent topic sentences, by the way, in the in the conclusion. And I think it really helps guide people uh, directly to these different perspectives. And they're very strong sentences that, that just very clearly identify what some of these perspectives are. I, I, I'm going to have a bit more of a preface to this question because when I move into the idea of solutions, I would like to say that one of the solutions I'm hearing still is about inclusivity in newsrooms, and we've made a lot of a lot of progress. We've there's a lot more progress that needs to be made, but my concern about uh, an inclusivity solution, and I'm not suggesting that's one of one of yours here, but an inclusivity uh, solution doesn't necessarily work unless we're preparing for inclusivity by addressing underlying um, predictions or underlying working conditions or underlying sentiments of how we work as organizations and the other things that we mentioned about who's an authoritative source to, to, a, to a person. Uh, how do we go ahead and cover things? How do we communicate with one another? So um, I, I know that maybe the inclusivity aspect uh, might be a great solution for, for everyone. Um, without addressing some of those underlying things to make inclusivity actually comfortable, welcoming, uh, sustainable, and uh, working within a change of fundamental ideologies of how how we work together and, and how news looks. Um, I, I, I wanted to see, you, you had some really great kind of sentences here that I think get to the heart of approaches that could be addressed in newsrooms everywhere um, from your experience. And, and I'm wondering if, if that would be of interest for you to kind of just go through a couple of those. So the whole idea of uh, inclusion, you know, people have these diversity trainings, these sessions, they come in and bring people from the outside to, you know, better a newsroom. But I think it starts at the very root. It starts with the people, um, you know, in a lot of organizations, you know, the bottom line is more important, how much money you're bringing in. So through this autoethnography, I wanted to more so appeal to news leaders to show them, you know, if you don't start acknowledging, uh, you know, people of color, black, black female journalists in your newsroom, here's how it can impact your whole newsroom. You know, um, you know, you might have someone who might sue. Um, you, you know, there's this new thing called quiet quitting um, that's happening, and I think it's been happening for a long time. All of those things can impact how your newspaper is run. So I more so wanted to grab at more of a personal, from a personal standpoint and not talk about diversity trainings or things that people have brought in already. But this is how, you know, racialized bullying not only impacts that one reporter, but it impacts you and your organization as a whole. So it's, of course, it's not more of a solution, but more so a different perspective at which news leaders can understand, hey, this affects me in this newspaper, not just that reporter. And this is for people who might not want to simply just acknowledge the reporter, but the newsroom as a whole. So when you say leadership can stop bullying before it happens, whether leadership is aware of it or not, by implementing rules, customs, and an inclusive culture. You also say, please leave your biases and stereotypical images of black women at the door. You say, think about the money that could be lost because of bullying and stereotypes. And to the black female journalists, do not compromise your integrity, spirit, and identity for a newsroom that might have been rooted in white culture before you entered it. What other thoughts do you have that... that um, 
could really could really motivate us not not to add more burden to what you've already what you've already done but this has been out for you know a short time now you're working on other aspects of your research um where are you going what are you thinking now um so right now i'm actually um looking at how um African-American reporters framed uh, news stories written about Blacks and COVID-19 because we have this perspective, uh, I think it's more of a sociological perspective of the white racial frame, which is a Eurocentric uh, viewpoint. And it, you know, it has everything to do with stereotypes, you know, white supremacy in terms of white people always being, you know, in leadership or better than, you know, other racial minorities. So I am looking at the fact that even though we have black journalists and people, you know, talk about diversity, we need more blacks in the newsrooms. Okay, we can have more blacks in the newsrooms, but if they have a white frame of thinking or they use the white racial frame, what's the point of having this black journalist in a newsroom if he or she or they are going to simply just, you know, write white? So again, a lot of my work focuses on race and it's not just that simple solution of bring in a diversity person, bring in a black journalist into a newsroom, because that does nothing if we're writing from a white perspective. And again, I target um, journalism institutions because they taught us to write from those white perspectives. So again, this whole idea of diversity does not simply just start with, you know, having uh, racial minorities in a newsroom. It starts with our frame of mind. And that's what I tried to get some of the editors, well, not just editors, but news leaders in this uh, research article to think about. Think about your uh, biases you have personally, because you can't work with someone uh, of color or a woman if you already have these biases that control your thinking and control your uh, your way of working. Well, really powerful papers that we talked about today and certainly a powerful story to end on for this episode. I want to thank everybody for participating and telling their stories and uh, their interpretations of other people's uh, stories, uh, these articles today. And I want to thank all of you for listening. We hope you tune in again for our future episodes of The J Word. All articles discussed during our episodes can be found by searching online for journals and practice. You can find them also in the episode descriptions. You can follow and connect with us on Twitter at Jern Practice or send any feedback about this podcast to jwordpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, take care.